Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. everyone thanks for joining us welcome back for another episode we hope you're getting into the halloween spirit it's spooky season our favorite time of the year well christy's favorite it's my favorite time mine <laughs> for sure it's scarier recording at nighttime when we're talking about murder and when i have to drive home after in the dark <laughs> tonight is our first night recording at night usually we record during the day but Melissa's ride home is long, dark country roads. So I'm going to be laughing, thinking of her driving home after we're done today. I'll just keep you on the phone all the time. And then I can be like, wait, what's that? What's that? And freak you out the whole way home. Like after we watched The Conjuring, remember that? Oh no, that was so scary. So Melissa was at my house watching The Conjuring and then she had to leave while it was dark out. I had to drive over this great big hill and I saw a big bright white light and immediately thought I had saw the done. I was totally convinced. It was so freaky. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Turns out it was just a roadside, though. <laughs> and ever since that night, now I have to go to Melissa's house to watch the scary movies so That's that scary. she doesn't have to drive home at night. You're braver than I am. I am. But speaking of scary things, we just got asked to do our very first live show. Yeah, we're doing a live show for the local animal rescue. Yeah, we're so excited to help out those little puppers. That means we actually have to get out of our sweats. Oh, man. <laughs> There's a reason we chose podcasting over YouTube. Yeah, because we can just hang out in our sweats and our messy buns and not worry about it. Our big step up will be putting on buried motive hoodies. So we'll still be comfortable, but maybe a little more presentable. <laughs> We're just promoting our merch that way. That's, That's right. <laughs> That's how we'll get away with wearing sweats in public. Yeah, it's our merch. We're That's allowed. Right. All right. <laughs> Let's get into today's case. Or tonight's case. Oh, tonight's case. Yeah, let's All get right, into- I'm excited. When the girls were little, did you always check their Halloween candy before they ate it? Oh, every time. Really? You didn't? No. <laughs> I probably even perused it from across the room. I was like, yeah, that looks good. And I'll collect that for parent tax. <laughs> oh, parent tax is the best. It is. What's your favorite to grab from their bags? It's either chips. Chips or chocolate bars. Never oh. candy. It's both. Both. It's always, always both. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Chips and chocolate bars. Every year we hear lots of warnings about the potential for poison candy and the importance of checking that candy. But how frequently do you think it actually happens? I've always kind of wondered. Is it just one of those scary old stories that they tell just so that kids don't gorge themselves on candy? Or so the parents can collect tax. Oh, oh let me check this yes. out for you. Maybe that's how it started. But I remember as a kid always hearing about the razors and apples, that that's how it kind of started. And there's many headlines about razors and apples or needles stuck in chocolate bars. Right. But the idea of poison candy actually isn't a new one. It seems that this fear started way back at the first of the industrial age when candy factories started up. People weren't making candy at home anymore. They were getting it from some stranger that had made it from who knows where. Oh, I could see that happening. Since 1958, there have been about 200 confirmed cases of candy tampering. So it does happen. The first being a dentist in California. He laced candies with laxatives and gave them out to over 450 kids. (laughs) That was a crappy thing to do. (laughs) That stinks. How many more can I do? Only about 30 of them got ill, though. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's unfortunate. Aww. In 1964, a woman was frustrated that teenagers were still coming to trick or treat at her house, so she made special packages for them. Oh filled- dear. <laughs> She filled them with arsenic laced ant traps and steel wool. <laughs> and how many times did her house get egg? Yeah. You know what? I don't mind teenagers coming. I feel like if they're going to come trick or treating, they're not getting into mischief elsewhere. So yeah, here, have the candy bar. More than happy to share with the candy with you. That's right. But there definitely have been a few cases where death has occurred, but most of those have been the result of family members, not some random stranger tainting oh, the candy. Scarier. I guess for obvious reason, it's way less scary thinking of it coming from a stranger than from somebody you know. It seems that the kids are more at risk from those that are tucking them in at night than they are from some random stranger. And that is definitely the case with the death of Timothy O'Brien that we're going to talk about today. Aww. Ronald Clark O'Brien was the dirtbag father who murdered his own son and became known as the Candyman or the man who killed Halloween. You'll be shocked at the callous way that he kills his own child, but I'm pretty sure you won't be shocked by the motive. I know how much you love criminal profiling, so I thought it would be interesting to tell you about the profile of a poisoner. Woohoo! I'm excited. And then as we go through the case, you can judge how accurate it is. Okay. So in Psychology Today, Joni Johnston says this about a profile of a poisoner, or at least those that got caught and could be studied. Only actually one in five poisoners gets caught. Really? Yeah. And are the majority women? No. Oh, because that's the number one way that women choose to kill people is through poisoning. It is is, but they don't make up the majority of poisoners. <gasps> that means there's a whole lot of poisoning happening. Yes. I Ooh. That was the most shocking thing to me was actually the majority of them aren't women. So killing someone with poison by its very nature requires careful planning and it comes as no surprise that poisoners tend to be cunning, sneaky, and very creative. Male or female, they tend to avoid physical confrontation and instead rely on verbal and emotional manipulation to get what they want from others. Interesting. Convicted poisoners also tend to have a sense of inadequacy for which they compensate through a scorn for authority, a strong need for control, and a self-centered, exploitive, interpersonal style. Often, either spoiled as a child or raised in an unhappy home, some experts liken the poisoner's personality to a child whose immature desire for his or her own ways leads him to try and control and manipulate the world. That's interesting. Developmentally stunted, other people are viewed without empathy, and the poisoner's internal compass is guided instead by greed and lust rather than morals. That's wild. I haven't heard that before. And so I was thinking back to our Belle case, and that really does fit her profile. That's true. That really does, actually. So as we go through this case, I want you to keep those traits in mind. So Ronald Clark O'Brien was born on October 19th, 1944 in Texas to William Anthony O'Brien and Elise Lane O'Brien. His mom passed away when he was only 11 years old. Oh. Yeah. And he was raised by a single dad from that point on. His father worked at the Houston Chronicle for Ronald's whole life. A newspaper that would later report on the case of his son murdering his grandson. (gasps) No. Yes. And he worked there the whole time of covering his son's murder case. That's crazy. In his father's obituary, Ronald is only referenced by his initials, even though everyone else has their full name in it. Really? That's all dirtbag shit get. It's hard to have sympathy for this guy. Right? 
Absolutely. Not much more is known about Ronald's early life up until 1974. It is known that he married a woman named Danine, and on April 5th, 1966, they had their first child together, a little boy named Timothy, when Ronald was 22 years old. Three years later, in 1969, the couple would have a baby girl whom they would name Elizabeth Lane. Aww. I love that. Looking from the outside in, it seemed that Ronald had the perfect life. He was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church in Pasadena and a soloist in the choir. Ronald was also in charge of the local parochial bus program. He was viewed as a model citizen and was described by his pastor as a good Christian man and an above average father. Above average? That bar must be set pretty low if he's above average. Or it just goes to show you how conniving he is and how he manipulates people into thinking that he's just all that. Well, maybe he was a good father to begin with. Yeah. And maybe he was just really bad with finances. Oh, (laughs) we have some motive. In October 1974, Ronald was living with his wife and two children. The family had recently sold their home and were renting a townhouse in Deer Park, Texas. Deer Park is a city within the Houston, Sugarland, Baytown metropolitan area and is situated in southeast Texas. It's about 20 minutes east of Houston. It's known as the birthplace of Texas because it's where the treaty was signed that would secure Texas's independence from Mexico. So there's your history lesson today. Oh, interesting. And what a great name, Sugarland. Ooh, Candyman from Sugarland. Sugarland. Ooh. Ooh, that is a good one. <laughs> Just made that connection now. <laughs> Even with its history, I guess it wasn't the most affluential neighborhood because Ronald had arranged with his friend Jimmy Bates to have a family dinner in his more fashionable Pasadena neighborhood on Halloween night. Then they would take their children trick-or-treating among the rich homes. Oh, that's always the best place to go (laughs) trick-or-treating. That's what I was going to ask. When you choose where to take your kids trick-or-treating, do you pick a neighborhood because they're more affluential or they have bigger homes or because of the candy they hand out? (laughs) Well, we do know which homes give out full-size chocolate bars. So we make sure to check those. (laughs) Because do you remember as a kid getting a full-size chocolate bar? Yes. Or a whole can of pop? I totally do. And it was awesome. But now as a parent, I don't have the memory anymore (laughs) to be like, where did we get that from? (laughs) No, I remember that. But this year, I'm handing out my two-liter pop again. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. It would have to be pretty memorable for me to remember which house to go back to. But then I was thinking, yeah, you handed out two liter bottles of pop last year. And that was memorable. My kids were so excited about it. <laughs> I have a friend who has done this like for years. And I just think it's so hilarious every time that he has done it because he will say, is it a trick or is it a treat? Because <laughs> at the beginning, they think it's a treat, but ask them in a half an hour when they've been carrying this two liter pop around. <laughs> If it's a trick or a treat. But it is so funny. Last year was my first year and I had to do it again this year. But the kids went crazy. There was kids, they would come up to my house and they would get their two liter pop and they would just be like, we get a whole two liter bottle of pop. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> you know what? COVID's been so crappy and yeah. I wasn't even sure if the kids would be allowed to trick or treat here. So they needed a nice surprise. It was fun. So after the dinner at the Bates home, the two O'Brien children, Timothy, who was eight at the time, and Elizabeth, who was five, changed into their costumes along with the two Bates children, Mark and Kimberly. As they prepared to leave the house, a light rain started, and there was some discussion about continuing with their plans of trick-or-treating in the poor weather. Sorry, I have to laugh. Texas is worried about trick-or-treating in the poor weather. That is laughable, because come to Canada, honey. (laughs) We've trick-or-treated with knee-deep snow. (laughs) The show must go on. Well, it kind of limits your Halloween costume selection, though, because you have to to fit the snowsuit underneath of it. Or over top, and then you can't even see it. Yeah. 
So Ronald really pushed for the kids to continue on. It was decided that Jimmy's daughter, Kimberly, would stay home and that those that were going would only go for a small amount of time. Their route would consist of only two streets, Citation Street and Donnerail Street. And they would even skip several houses on those streets as they were going around because the weather was so poor. So it was a really short trick-or-treating outing. Really, they were just ringing some doorbells to say that they had gone out trick-or-treating just to appease the kids because they had worked them up into like, yeah, we're going trick-or-treating, but the weather was really crappy. And that's so disappointing as a kid when it's well, for us, when it's so cold. Well, I think it's disappointing as an adult, too, because after you spend all that money in the preparation of getting the costumes ready and everything like that, to not get to go ha- trick-or-treating, that's such a disappointment. It really is. I love trick-or-treating. I love the whole vibe of it. I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I try to bribe my kids and be like, look, if this is the money we were going to spend on your Halloween costume... I could just buy you the candy you wanted. Oh, that's a good point. And then they can choose the candy that they want. I don't have leftover candy from the year before that nobody ever wants to eat. They just get the stuff they want. My kids never go for it. But it's Halloween. So the group trudged on through the rain with the children excitedly collecting candy. And even Ronald was in the Halloween spirit, dressing up in his white optician's lab coat as a costume. (laughs) He dressed up in his work uniform. That's perfect. In the planning phases of the evening, it was decided that Jimmy would wait on the sidewalk and Ronald would be the one to accompany the children to the door and collect the candy. And this was the method they used at 4112 Donnerail Street. Even though the lights were off, Ronald suggested that they try the doorbell anyway. No one answered and the kids quickly ran off to the next house. But Ronald lingered a little more patient for the homeowners to answer the door. About 30 seconds later, he ran up to catch up with the children, waving giant pixie sticks, exclaiming, you've got rich neighbors. Look what they're giving out. Because these weren't just ordinary pixie sticks, but 22 inch long ones. Holy cow. Yeah, they were like the great big giant ones. Those are pixie swords. (laughs) (laughs) Those are ginormous. They were so large that Ronald offered to carry them until they had finished trick-or-treating so that they wouldn't take up too much room in their bags. Hmm. When they reconvened at the Bates home, Ronald doled out the pixie sticks to his two children and the Bates two children. While he was teasing them that he should keep the last one for himself, a group of trick-or-treaters rang the bell at the Bates home, and among them was Whitney Parker, an 11-year-old that lived about a block away. Ronald teased the group about who would be the lucky one to receive the giant pixie stick. Isn't that such a dad move? Oh, totally. Yeah, because a mom would be like, uh, if you don't have enough to go around, then nobody oh, gets it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> only a dad would do that. But that's what Ronald did. He was like teasing this group of children trick-or-treating because he only had the one pixie stick left. Whitney raised his hand and reminded Ronald that they attended the same church and was awarded the prize for the connection. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> With- lucky boy. Yeah, such a lucky boy. With the candy distributed, the O'Brien family said goodbye to the Bates. Ronald took the children home and put them to bed after the night's festivities, and his wife, Deneen, went out to visit a friend. As he was tucking his children into bed around 9 p.m. that evening, Ronald offered his children their choice of one piece of candy before they went to bed. What would your choice have been? You could only have one. Ooh, I don't know. Probably a chocolate. But as a kid, you know, I really liked those rockets. Would you have chosen something big? Oh, yeah. Because I have one child that I'll tell them, okay, one piece of candy before you go to bed. And she goes and gets the big bag of candy that's stuffed with all the other candy. And it's like, this is my one thing. (laughs) And plays the system every year. And I'm sure that that came into Timothy's mind. He has this great big, huge pixie stick. And who feeds their kid that right before bed? (laughs) 
Well, he said one piece of candy. He didn't he didn't say that it had to be a small piece. Do you want a liter of sugar before you go to bed? Because that's going to work out well. Just wait. He does even better. So his choice was obviously this 22-inch long pixie stick. He struggled to open the long plastic straw filled with powdered flavored sugar, though, because the staple that held the plastic straw together was too difficult for him to remove with his small hands. In his statement to the police at the hospital later that night, Ronald said that he had helped Timothy open the pixie stick, helped loosen the powder, and tilted it so that Timothy could enjoy his treat. Oh my gosh. Almost immediately, after dumping a large amount of candy into his mouth, Timothy complained that it didn't taste right and that it was bitter. Ronald offered Timothy a glass of Kool-Aid, a sugar-filled drink, to help wash down the bitterness. We had thought ahead enough to have Kool-Aid ready. Because he knew it was going to taste bitter. Yeah. Within- like, normally I'd be like, oh, cute, uh-huh. But knowing, like, what he's going to do to his son is just terrible. Like, to actually tip it up to put it in his mouth. Yeah. Like, here you go, son. It's so crazy. What a dirt bag! Within minutes, Timothy was complaining that his stomach was hurting and ran to the bathroom. He began to have convulsions while his father held him. And when he went limp, Ronald dialed 911 and said that his son had been poisoned with Halloween candy. <gasps> When the EMS arrived, they tried to get the story of what had happened out of Ronald, but he appeared to be ill as well, making multiple trips to the bathroom while Timothy was being treated and loaded into ambulance. Oh my goodness. Timothy, was he really sick? Who knows? That's just what the EMS report was. Is he every, just wanted it to appear like he was probably. Or he was trying to get out of their questioning. They were trying to say what happened, where did this candy come from, how much did he eat, and yeah. he was avoiding their questions by saying that he was ill and heading to the bathroom. And honestly, that has to be a huge battle bathroom emergency for you not to be by your child's side when they're getting loaded into an, into ambulance. an ambulance. Yeah. yeah. Timothy was taken to Southmore Hospital and he was pronounced dead by 1030 that <gasps> Halloween night. So oh. it happened very, very quickly. A lot of the reports that I read said that he died within an hour of eating the candy, but the hospital didn't report his actual death until about 1030 that evening. Oh, but it happened quick. Oh my gosh. Quick and painful by the sounds yeah. of it. Horrific. Yeah. And who can do that? And just sit back and watch. Yeah. When police questioned Ronald at the hospital, he was vague about where the candy had come from, but police worked quickly putting out bulletins for anyone trick-or-treating in the Pasadena area to bring in any suspicious looking candy to the police station in an effort to stop any further poisonings from happening. So they're trying to be really on the ball and get whatever is on the street, whatever Timothy has had off the street immediately. Because they have no idea where it came from at this point. Yeah. And if you do find any candy that is stapled closed, yeah, don't eat it. Warning, warning. Yeah. If it had to be stapled back together, then... So this case is actually the reason in Texas that they didn't trick-or-treat for many, many years after this. Really? Yeah. It was like nobody trick-or-treated. He ruined Halloween. That's right. He's known as the candy man or the man who killed Halloween. Aw. Police went door-to-door on the streets that Ronald had identified that they had trick-or-treated on, Searching out any other large pixie sticks and keeping a record of what kinds of candy that each house had handed out. And the pretend house that he pretended to get candy at that had the lights out. Just wait, we'll get to that pretend house. They found four more pixie sticks that fit the description that Ronald had given of the pixie stick that Timothy had eaten from. The first was found in Timothy's sister's treat bag. It was unopened. And how do you pick? How do you pick which one to give it to The next two were found in the Bates home. Kimberly and Mark each had their pixie stick taken away because Mark had been swinging his around. I told you it was a pixie stick sword. (laughs) That's how he was using it. See, it really was a sword. A pixie stick sword. (laughs) I would take it away totally. Yeah. My kid is flinging around this two foot long pixie (laughs) stick. 
<laughs> Jimmy Bates would later recount receiving the phone call about Timmy's death and hearing that his daughter was not feeling well. He raced home to be with her, all the time thinking that some psycho or dopehead had poisoned the candy. Oh, but yeah, you wouldn't suspect your friend. No, not at all. That you'd been trick-or-treating with. Luckily, his daughter hadn't eaten her pixie stick and was only suffering from a headache. But you'd be hypervigilant about how your kids were feeling. If you just learned that the kid that they'd went trick-or-treating with had died from having poison candy and your kid started to feel ill. Oh, you wouldn't would you freak, freak out? And you would yeah. grab, like, those poor kids didn't get any of their candy, probably. And, like, where was he hiding these giant pixie sticks? Well, he had his lab coat on. Oh, duh. <laughs> That was way more simpler. I was like, wait, nope. wait, well, do lab coats have two foot pockets though? No, but they're long. Mind you, if he had it in his pant pocket, it could stick all the way up and up, the lab coat and would cover it. See it. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I had to visualize. The last pixie stick was found in the home of Whitney, the little boy that had trick-or-treated at the Bates home. And that's so sad because he thought, oh, I've got a connection with this guy. This is why I got it. And that backfired. Totally backfired. Poor kid. He'd been told no candy before bed, but he had snuck it into his room. <gasps> the pixie stick? Uh-huh. Oh, no. The police found him in his bed with the candy clutched in his hands. <gasps> he was fast asleep. Oh. <laughs> you brat. <laughs> and don't edit that out. You are a brat. I was oh, so terrified. I love so the he, dramatics of it. Well, I gave you the dramatics, yeah. so you're welcome. <laughs> you got me hook, line, and sinker, girl. <laughs> yeah. No, he was fast asleep. It seems that he had had the same difficulty that Timothy had had in opening the candy <gasps> and had oh. given up or fell asleep while he was trying to open it. Literally, like when the police were going door to door and told his parents, like, does your son have any giant pixie sticks? They're like, yes, he does. And they couldn't find it. So they rushed into his room and found him asleep with it in his hands. Oh, can you imagine the panic? Oh, it would have been horrifying. Oh, that must have been his guardian angel was like, nope, you can't open it. <laughs> Well, luckily he used a big staple. Because he was older, wasn't he? Yeah, he was older. He was 11. 11, yeah. So like why he wouldn't have even got a pair of scissors or something to open it? Well, because he was sent to bed and he had snuck it into his room. So he couldn't go oh. out and get scissors. So he was trying to open it with his hands. I was maybe a more determined kid. I would have got that thing open. Yeah, I would have used my teeth. Or open. Like, yeah. But these aren't the little tiny pixie sticks. Like they're the great big ones that have that thicker coating on them. That is true. So back at the hospital, the investigation into the actual cause of Timothy's death was occurring at the same time that the police were out looking for candy. Bill Lanier, the detective assigned to the case, had been on the Pasadena police force for less than a year, and this was his first murder investigation. Oh. But here's what he did that was so fabulous. He consulted an experienced medical examiner for guidance and was given the suggestion to have the on-call medical examiner note the smell of Timothy's mouth. His mouth smelled like almonds. When the experienced oh. medical examiner was told this, he suggested to the detective that the child was most likely poisoned with cyanide. Oh. Because cyanide smells like almonds? Mm-hmm. It smells oh. like bitter almonds. Interesting. Timothy's autopsy would confirm that suspicion. When the stomach contents were analyzed, it was found that it contained 16 milligrams of cyanide. <gasps> And his bloodstream had 0.4 milligrams, twice the lethal dose of an adult. Oh my gosh. And a little kid. So no wonder it was so quick. No. He had no fighting chance at Not all. Not at all. And for the amount of research that Ronald put into this. That like was overkill. Was, it was way overkill. And he knew it. He wanted to make sure it was a done deal. Absolutely. He wanted to make sure there was no coming back from it. Oh, what a creep. Timothy's mouth had so much residual cyanide in it that the EMS attendant was told that had he performed mouth to mouth on Timothy, he would have been poisoned as well. Oh, and that's that insane. After he had puked and after all of these things had happened. And washed it down with Kool-Aid. And his mouth still had so much <gasps> cyanide in it. 
Oh my gosh. With the pixie sticks in hand, the police were able to determine that the top two inches of each pixie stick contained potassium cyanide. The one that Timothy had eaten from was missing the top four inches of powder, and no cyanide was found in the remaining powder. So he made sure he had it all. Right at the very beginning. Oh. Like a full dose, not diluted at all. So he's lazy. He's a lazy dirtbag, too. Because I would have dumped out all the sugar, added it it in, mixed it up. And then poured it back in because then he wouldn't taste it as much either. Nope. He didn't care about how it tasted. He just, he knew that they would dump it into their mouth. And he basically force fed it to his son. Because he tilted it up into his mouth. To make sure that a bunch would go in there. Ugh. What a dirtbag. From their call to collect suspicious candy, police collected a whole room full of candy from concerned parents. And there was no other poison candy found. So out of a whole room of candy that was collected... There wasn't another single piece of candy that was found that was poisoned. But now all of the pixie sticks had been poisoned. All five of them had all been poisoned. They all contained two inches at the top. Well, they assumed that Timothy's contained two inches at the top because all the other four that they tested, all the first two inches were all cyanide. Oh, that is so evil. Why do that, like you said, to all the other kids? Yeah, there's no reason to. No. I mean, you shouldn't be doing it to your own kid. Absolutely not. But then just doing these others like for collateral damage so it doesn't look as suspicious? When it became apparent that all the pixie sticks had some connection to the O'Brien and the Bates Halloween party, Police interviewed Ronald and other members of the Halloween party that had trick-or-treated together to find out more specifics and try to find where the poison had come from. At this time, they're still believing that Ronald had picked it up from a neighbor's house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Well, you would. Random stranger. Especially because you found the pixie sticks in other people's homes. If it was just his one son, like Mm -hmm. just the one child had this pixie stick, then it would look a little more suspicious. And that's probably why he made more to make it look like, oh, other kids in the neighborhood got it too. But he was totally willing to risk other kids' lives. Oh yeah, he didn't care. Nope, not at all. And that just goes back to that profile that they have no empathy for anybody else. So he wouldn't have cared that the other parents would lose their children. Oh, as long as he got what he wanted. Oh, he's terrible. As they interviewed Ronald, his poor memory of the previous night's happenings caused the police to actually walk the trick-or-treating route with him, trying to help him remember which house had given him the candy. And this was a little odd. They'd only trick-or-treated on two streets. It wasn't like they were out for hours and hours. Right, and not even every house, you said. No, they had skipped over some houses, and so they hadn't visited very many houses. He should have remembered. When questioned repeatedly, he could never recall the exact house that the candy had come from. It was during the third interrogation that Ronald's memory was eventually jogged. The house that he had received the candy from was the home of Courtney and Carolyn Melvin. Ronald couldn't remember any details about the person because he said the person had never fully opened the door, just stuck their arm out with pixie sticks. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because that's not suspicious. No, not at all. He did remember, hold on, he did remember, though, that the arm was very hairy. That was the only thing he could remember. (laughs) Can you imagine going to a graduating and all he sees is, like, hand come out with these giant pixie sticks? Yeah, from a dark house. That's yeah, all the lights out. Yeah. Ooh, that would be freaky. It would be so I'd be freaky. like, oh, no, thank you, sir. I'm full. <laughs> <laughs> but, but instead, he skips down and is like, look what the rich neighbors gave us. Oh, what a creep. Like, and this just seems so stupid. Like, they're going to interview these people and investigate, and they're not going to find anything. They weren't even home. They'll have an alibi. The police believe that they had caught a break because the house had previously been identified by Jimmy Bates, so the guy that was waiting on the sidewalk, right? as the house that he remembered the candy coming from. Like, he's like, oh, we visited that house and that's that it came from that house. Right. So he's corroborated his story. Unfortunately, like you believed, the Melvins had a solid alibi. 
Yeah, dumb, 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 dumb. Courtney had left the home around 1.30 to work at the local airport and hadn't returned to the house until well after 10.45 that night. And many other witnesses, and when I say many, many other witnesses, it's like over 200 witnesses attested to him being at work. So there's no (laughs) way that he handed out any of the candy. He didn't just stick his little hairy arm out there and hand him some candy. Not at all. (laughs) His wife, Carolyn, and their children had been home, but had turned out the lights very early in the evening, around 6.45, because they had run out of candy Mm. and they hadn't handed out any pixie sticks but does she have a super hairy arm carolyn does not have very hairy arms okay then that she's out she's out (laughs) that rules her out yep when police reviewed their notes from the street canvassing that they had done earlier they found that actually no house had handed out giant pixie sticks yeah probably no other kids in the neighborhood got them nope it was only these five police searched the o'brien's home in hopes of finding some clue as to where the candy had come from they found a pair of scissors and a knife both of which contained trace evidence that was consistent with coming into contact with the pixie sticks the scissors had a lavender plastic substance and a purplish stain on them and the knife had a wax-like substance and clear crystals along its blade while this trace evidence was consistent with the pixie sticks that timothy had consumed it wasn't a definitive conclusion that they were in fact from the same pixie stick and they couldn't determine whether that trace evidence was there from his dad trying to help him open the pixie stick. Oh. Yeah. Even though it wasn't, it was him cutting them open probably. Well, it's probably, yeah. More likely him filling them back up and using the knife to kind of pour it in. The conflicting reports by Ronald were puzzling to the police. But he wasn't the prime suspect. The lead detective described Ronald as a big guy, but he talked soft, almost feminine, and having a real hangdog look. He noted that he wasn't overly emotional, but didn't think that it was reason enough to suspect him of any wrongdoing. He kind of chalked everything up to grieving. That was until reports from other individuals started coming in. That's when the police started seriously looking at Ronald as the culprit in his own son's death. Oh, that's so terrible. In the days immediately following Timothy's death, several people started to take note of Ronald's unusual behavior. On November 1st, while making funeral arrangements, Ronald ordered six death certificates when he became aware that insurance policies required original copies of the death certificate and told the funeral director that his son had died from potassium cyanide poisoning. I found it really interesting that already, so it's November 1st, so the next day, because he died late on the 31st, they're still doing an investigation and he tells the funeral director that he died of potassium cyanide poisoning. There's no oh. way they would have the autopsy results <gasps> back that quickly. Oh, not the smartest cookie in the box. No, not at all. Friends and family around him would say that in public, Ronald made moving emotional displays of grief, but in private seemed really unfazed by his son's death. His wife in one of her statements said that he was screaming at the hospital saying like, why would my son be the one to die and all of these things. But then other people saw him at the hospital when he didn't think that people were watching him. And he was like, meh, whatever. Oh, he's the worst. He's a good actor. Why would my son die? Because you killed him, Ronald. (laughs) A couple of days after the death of his son, he sang an emotional hymn in church, changing the words slightly to include Tim's name in the lyrics and gave this very emotional performance. But then later at his funeral, he went up to give the eulogy and Jimmy Bates noticed that he walked right past his son's casket and didn't blink an eye. Like he didn't even look down at his son. He was just putting on a show. Yep. How can it be so cold hearted? 
people because it's just all about what he wants. The first big tip-off came a few days after Timothy's funeral. The insurance company contacted the police to let them know how speedily Ronald had contacted them to cash in on a fairly new insurance policy taken out on October 3rd of that year. People are so dumb sometimes, I just have to say, because you hear about this a lot in these types of cases where there's a poisoning or a death or whatever. Someone murders a family member for money and the very next day they're looking to cash in. Where's my money? Yeah, that's suspicious, people. Wait a little while. And I'm pretty sure most insurance companies have practices that say if an insurance policy is brand new and then it gets activated within the first month of it being out, it's automatically deemed suspicious. Yeah. And so he totally hits up all the red flags. Now, I don't know if that was the case back in 1974. Probably not so much then. It's not all electronic and easy to find when it was actually filed. Maybe. Police learned that the O'Brien's finances were far from being in order. They had sold their previous home because of the debt that they held and had applied the proceeds from that home to their most pressing debts. So that's why they had to move into that townhouse because they actually had to sell their home to pay off debts. But the proceeds from their house weren't enough. By October 1974, they were eight months behind on their car payment. It was about to be repossessed. And the family was reported to be in $100,000 of debt. Ooh. Police gathered information on the family's finances rather easily because Ronald was very forthcoming to his friends and his co-workers about his financial difficulties. And so huh. that's, again, one of those other traits is that they're childlike. So they don't yeah. know what to filter. Well, and wanting people to feel sorry for them, maybe yeah. hoping someone will help them. He had even tried to borrow money from his associates at work and his professional association, but was denied by both. So he was trying to pull out loans from a whole bunch of different people because he was in such dire straits. It's actually too bad nobody gave it to him because maybe he wouldn't have went to this extreme. Yeah, that's true. I never thought about that. So are you promoting loaning money to your friends, Christy? Well, I need a loan. (laughs) Well, how many kids are you planning to kill? Ronald had a very shoddy employment history. In the last 10 years, he had held over 21 different jobs and had been fired from them all. What? Yep. The last 10 years? 10 years he had held 21 jobs. 21 jobs. Oh. The most often cited reasons for being fired were negligence or fraudulent behavior. It's one thing to like change jobs a lot, but he had been fired from 21 jobs. Oh my gosh. So that's when you know you're the problem. Yeah. With people like that, it's usually, oh, my boss was this and this is what happened and they have an excuse for everyone. And it's like, no, honey, you're the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody gets fired from 21 jobs. At his current job at Texas State Optical, he was on the verge of being fired because he was suspected of stealing money from them. It was discovered by police that in January 1974, not even a year before, Ronald had taken out a $10,000 life insurance policy on each of his children when he joined the New Outlooks Club. The club had a deal that offered life insurance to members to purchase at a discounted rate. Ronald's wife was opposed to the idea, not seeing the need for life insurance for children, and thought that even though the premiums were really minimal, that it wasn't responsible to stress their already tight budget. Mm-hmm. So they were barely making ends meet and he kept on adding on these insurance premiums. Well, from, she would have no idea that this is what he's going to do. No, not at yeah, all. Who would suspect that? From the insurance agent that tipped the police off, they learned Ronald had also purchased an additional life insurance policy for both of his children on October 3rd of 1974, not even a full month before Timothy's death. These policies carried an additional $20,000 on each of the children without their mother's knowledge. The insurance agent told police that he had tried to talk Ronald into another policy that would have given each of the children 
25000 when they turned 23 years old. But Ronald had refused the idea, instead preferring the policy that held the larger death benefit. Oh, so was he planning to kill the daughter too? Yeah, he took out the insurance on both of them and gave her a pixie stick. So I'm not understanding why she didn't get the same treatment. Yeah. And you think if you're going to kill one and you're really like, if you're that desperate for money, you're willing to kill your child. What's killing the second one? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But for some <laughs> I mean, reason. don't kill any. But yeah. <laughs> Maybe it would be less suspicious mm-hmm. if he had the policy out on both. Because if it was just on Timothy, then that would raise more red yeah. flags. Probably. But at the same time, Timothy's life insurance doesn't add up to their debt. No, so so it's not even worth it. I know. And so that's why I'm like, he's not good at math at all. Unless he was planning to kill his daughter later. But it still wouldn't cover it. No, it wouldn't. Because that would be only 60000 right? Yeah. And how sad that he put a price on his son's life, $30,000. But $30,000 was a huge amount back then for life but insurance But not when you owe 100000 No. And not if you're willing to kill for it. No. It's not enough money. And a couple of thousand of that would come out for funeral costs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, dirt bag. The insurance agent also found it odd that Ronald wanted the policy documents kept at the insurance office for safekeeping and made excuses for why his wife was unable to sign for them. Oh yeah, he didn't want her to see. No, so not of course at all. he wanted them left there. Yeah. With this new policy, Ronald increased the coverage on each child to thirty thousand dollars. So that's equivalent to one hundred seventy thousand today. Well, that is a lot. It's, it's a good chunk of change, but again, nowhere near the hundred thousand that he's actually in debt. For the time, it was a super high amount. Of but even now, like to- with when I was working for the insurance company, it's a high payout for a child death, $100,000. Normally, if you're taking out a policy for a child, it's just to cover the cost of their funeral. You're not expecting it to happen. So you don't want to pay a lot on it. But if a child does unfortunately happen to pass away, if you have that just to cover their funeral funeral cost. cost. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Because it's not like your spouse where if you are both working or... You have to replace an income. An income, yeah. So for a child, it's generally just for the funeral. No, it was a hefty insurance policy, Mm -hmm. especially when you consider that Ronald himself didn't have any coverage. Yeah. See, and that's where it should be, right? Because if he were to pass away, his his wife has these two kids and in the 70s, most wives didn't work. She would need the policy to help replace his income from one of his jobs. Pick what you got 21 to choose from. (laughs) This was really suspicious Mm -hmm. to the police. It's like, wait a minute, you've got all these insurance policies on your kids and none on yourself. It didn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. No. The police also followed up with the pixie stick manufacturer and had learned they don't staple them closed that's right (laughs) is that what they learned yeah that's what they learned (laughs) rocket science my friends rocket science Ooh, i could be a detective yeah after talking to the production company it was learned that each end of the giant pixie sticks was normally heat sealed the five collected from ronald from the hairy armed stranger all (laughs) had only one end that was heat sealed the other end had the label folded over the opening and stapled shut Mm -hmm. why didn't he iron it (laughs) Again, he's not a smart guy. (laughs) I mean, nowadays we have our hair straighteners that you could just like easily crimp that closed. Absolutely. But he would have had an iron, could have melted it back down. It would have been super easy to do. Yeah. See, we're smarter. That's right. That's a little bit scary. That is scary, actually. (laughs) The things we learned during our research. This detail was particularly interesting because a witness came forward and claimed to have seen Ronald on Halloween day carrying a stapler and a grocery bag with unknown contents walking across his work parking lot. Oh, okay, from work. I'm like, really? He was walking down the street with a stapler? <laughs> no, he, Don't he be had... suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> I'm just going to walk down the street with my stapler. He had stole the stapler from work. Oh. <laughs> then put it in your jacket, Ronald. No. Come on. 
He's not a smart guy. Oh. And I just have to say, this is why I check my kids' candy. Because if I found a dang pixie stick that had been <laughs> cut open, stapled. folded over, and stapled, that baby would have went in the garbage. My poor children would have been eating it. <laughs> Because I think everybody's nice. <laughs> Not after doing this. Nope. <laughs> While questioning coworkers, friends, and family, police would learn about Ronald's unusual preoccupation with cyanide, where he could get it, and even what a lethal dose was. He wasn't just asking a few people about this. Almost everyone he came into contact with knew of this fascination he had with cyanide. Oh One gosh. of his customers from the store came forward to say that during a conversation with Ronald, they had spoken about what the possible lethal dose of cyanide would be. So while he was selling glasses to somebody, oh. somehow he worked in. And by the way, what do you think the lethal dose of cyanide is? Because <laughs> that's a natural conversation. I, know, I mean, right? I guess he didn't have Google back then, but go to your library. Oh. Don't be so lazy. And why wouldn't this raise flags for everybody? Well, but he sounds like he's kind of a weirdo anyway. So. He's a little bit off. Most disturbing to the police were people's reports of Ronald's behavior preceding Halloween and immediately following the death of his son. Jimmy Bates spoke to the police about his suspicions about Ronald after seeing him coldly walk by his son's casket without even gazing down. That must have given him a chill. Like That would be chilling to watch. Yeah. Your friend just not even acknowledge his dead child. Yeah. Well, maybe you could kind of brush it off and say that that was a coping mechanism. Maybe. That you didn't want to acknowledge what had actually happened, so you just wouldn't look. But however it happened, it stood out enough to him. Yeah. So it was not odd. just walking past, like you're sad, you're looking down. Mm-hmm. Like it was no, he, something it, about it. He described it as he was walking by and didn't even, like it didn't phase him at Like all. he was walking by a park bench. He came forward to the police and said Ronald had recently been talking about purchasing a new home and even taking a vacation, which he thought was unusual because his friend had known financial issues. Ronald was saying he was going to take a vacation? Yes. Ronald was talking to Jimmy saying, hey, I'm going to purchase a new home. And if you help me look for it, don't tell my wife that I'm looking for a new home, but let's go look for homes and let's check some homes out and let's look at vacations. Ronald, you got bills to pay. No, he doesn't. Because his math skills suck, and he thought it would take care of all of his $100,000 debt. The $30,000. Yeah. What a wanker. (laughs) Can we say wanker on podcast? It wasn't long before the police had a lot of circumstantial evidence against Ronald. So much so that he was arrested on November 4th and charged with the murder of his son, Timothy, and three counts of attempted murder. The cincher in the investigation had been an adding machine tape that the police found where Ronald had apparently been calculating up his debts that needed to be paid off right away. And the sum magically was almost the exact amount that the insurance company was going to pay out. Oh, so it was what needed to be paid. Yeah. Like so that his car wouldn't get repossessed. And that's right. So, so not was... to get rid of all of it, but just to buy him some time. Yeah. He was thinking short term. So not even worth it. I mean, mm-hmm. not that it's ever worth it, but just so pointless. Totally So your pointless. car is more important than your son's life. Mm-hmm. Like how? Or let them repossess it and get a cheaper car. Right. Yeah. Or like get, take the bus. Just crazy. The trial began on May 5th in Houston, and Ronald pled innocent to all five charges against him. What? Yeah, and he had actually had a conversation with his friend Jimmy saying, well, I don't know how they're going to pin this on me. Oh, my goodness. His defense remained that some unknown stranger had given him five pixie sticks and that he unknowingly had distributed them. Yeah, it was the hairy arm. Yeah, and that's what they ran with for his defense. 
During the trial, there was a lot of testimony from witnesses that set the stage to tell the story of months of premeditation of the murder of his son. Ronald was portrayed as a compulsive liar that had a fascination with cyanide and a habit of running his mouth off. Sounds pretty accurate. In August, Ronald had tried to have his employer purchase cyanide. Apparently, a really, really long time ago, cyanide was used to clean gold glass frames. In the 70s? Like when this No, not in the 70s. Like a really, really long time ago. And so when he put in this purchase order to his employer, the employer was like, uh, we don't do that anymore. So there's no need to order cyanide. And he tried to do it again. And they actually had to move it up like to another higher supervisor to say, no, like we're not doing this. That's crazy. Who would even want that in their office? Like I wouldn't even want that near me. It's so dangerous. Yeah. In September, he contacted a friend who worked for Arco Chemical Company and discussed the varieties and the availability of cyanide. During this conversation, Ronald told his friend that he was taking a community college course in chemistry and he felt that the professor did not have a very good knowledge of cyanide. And that's why he was inquiring all of these questions from his friend who worked at the chemical company. He might as well have just worn a neon sign because he's talking to every single person he meets about cyanide. Does anybody know where I can get enough cyanide to kill someone? (laughs) How much do I need? Where can I order it from? Shortly before Halloween, Ronald was identified by a store clerk at a chemical outlet mall. He was trying to purchase a small amount of cyanide, but was disappointed to learn that the company only sold it in five pound containers. (laughs) And hold on. According to the clerk, it wasn't the amount that was too much for him. It was actually the price. Oh, for sure. He didn't want to pay that much for that. No. Like that big of amount because he didn't actually need that much. No, he only needed about a cup. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Two inches on each of those things. A cup would probably have done it. Ten inches of cyanide. On October 23rd, Ronald signed an agreement with the Medical Branch Credit Union that he would repay his outstanding debts with them in January 1975. During that interaction, he informed them that he expected a large sum of money before the end of 1974. Oh, dirt So he was so terrible. Totally planning it. Oh, totally planning it. Yeah. A co-worker claimed that Ronald had told him of his intention to quit his job on November 15th. And I don't know how you could plan something like that for so long. Like watching your little son playing and I love you, daddy, and kisses goodnight and tucking him in bed, knowing that this is what you were going to do on Halloween. I don't know how you do that either. Uh Uh-uh. That's a whole nother level of evil. Ronald's wife testified against him during the trial. Yeah, totally. (laughs) She described the care that Ronald had taken into arranging the trick-or-treating activities, which he had never really shown an interest in before. She claimed that he was the one to go out and purchase their Halloween costumes, to arrange the dinner with their friends, to pick the neighborhood. Like that had all been on him and him orchestrating it. She claimed to have no knowledge of the $20,000 insurance policies that were taken out on her children or any sum of money that the family expected to receive. Because she took the stand after all of these other people were like, yeah, and he told me this and this and this. And so she was learning this at the trial for the first time. Oh, can you imagine? It would have been awful to be her. Oh. She claimed to have been blindsided by her husband's actions and that it had taken her a long time to wrap her head around her husband plotting to kill their children. But in the end, her nagging suspicion helped her come to terms with it. And up until the trial, she had actually regularly visited him in jail. 
Wow. Yeah. He, she said that he cried and professed his innocence every time she visited. Well, you and, wouldn't want to believe it. No, you wouldn't want to believe it. And she said that even though there are times that she was like, he must be innocent because he, he's like so emotional over this and like pulling at her heartstrings, she said in the back of her mind that she just always kind of knew that he was lying. She revealed that she was probably an intended victim as well because Ronald had wanted her to have a life insurance policy, but she had refused feeling that it was an unnecessary expense and had canceled their appointment with the insurance agency. So that probably saved her life. It probably did. And I'm wondering if this is where he expected to make up the other 40,000 oh, probably for the if he was going to take out his whole family and then when she didn't end up with her insurance policy, maybe he had to change his plans around a little bit. Maybe cuz maybe he was going to plan something that would take them all out at once. Right. Like and arson it, or something like that. Yeah. What did not come out in the trial was how Ronald secured the cyanide. And that is still not known to this day. Sorry, he didn't buy the five pound bag? No, he didn't because it was too expensive. Oh, I thought he bought it anyways and just complained that it was too expensive. No, he didn't buy it. He probably stole it. Nobody, he steals the stapler. Nobody knows where he got it from. And actually, remember how we talked about in the Patty Roar case about how the case was really circumstantial and there wasn't yeah. actually a lot of hard evidence except for that hair evidence? In this one, there is really no hard evidence at all. It's just all this, huh. oh, he told me this and this is what happened. Other than these insurance policies that he purchased, there's no hard evidence. Really? Yeah. Huh. So despite the lack of physical evidence linking Ronald to the crime, there was sufficient circumstantial evidence for a jury of 10 men and three women to find him guilty of capital murder and four attempted murders. Wow. And, and he never does confess or does he? Never, ever. And it always is so unsettling to me when they never confess. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, what if, what if he didn't do it? What if there really was a hairy arm man? What if, right? <laughs> you know what I think he did though? He probably went into the store with his scissors, cut open the bag, took out his cup of cyanide, folded down the flap and stapled it closed. <laughs> <laughs> No one will ever suspect. <laughs> he probably totally did. <laughs> That's why he was walking down the street with his stapler. That's it. And the paper bag. The bag yeah. That had the baggie with the cyanide in it. Maybe. Who knows? But yeah, he, no physical evidence was actually found. That's frustrating too when mm -hmm. you don't have that. But it goes into him believing that he's just smarter than everybody. But even his obsession with the cyanide has to be used as evidence. Well, again, circumstantial. The jury reached the verdict in less than an hour of deliberations on wow. June 3rd. Wow. Yeah. So they knew right away. His sentencing only took 71 minutes. Ronald was sentenced to die. Good. Yeah. Sorry. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> we know Christy's opinion of the death penalty. For some people, it's just justified. Yeah. I'm mixed yeah. when it comes to the death penalty, to be honest. But for someone like that to do that to his little boy. Yeah. But then I'm always like, oh, but what if he didn't, he didn't confess? <laughs> Yeah, you would stress too much about I it. I would totally stress too much about it. But it is hard in a case like that when you don't have all that evidence. Yeah. Ronald was incarcerated in Huntsville, Texas on Ellis Unit 1. There, the prison chaplain revealed that Ronald was despised and shunned by other inmates for the horrible crime that he committed. Oh, yeah. So there's a Oh, I wouldn't want to be him in prison. No, not at all. You mm -hmm. don't kill kids, let alone your own kid. Yeah. So he was definitely a target amongst the prisoners. Oh, yeah. There's a special place in the afterlife for people like that, as well as in prison for people yeah. like that. It was his fellow inmates that would nickname him the Candyman, which it can be a little bit confusing sometimes because there's actually another murderer that's deemed the Candyman, and he's from Texas, too. Oh, both. Yeah. Hmm. So I didn't know we'll... there was another one named Candyman. But it was actually the inmates that gave him the nickname Candyman. Oh, I assumed it was the media. Nope. Get a hold of it. They him. just called him the man who killed, killed Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Okay. 
After the sentencing, Deneen divorced Ronald and relocated with their daughter, Elizabeth. As soon as they find him guilty, she never visits him again. Oh, yeah. She, like, cuts all ties with him. She remarried four years later, and Elizabeth was adopted by her new husband, and their names were changed for protection from the media. Oh, good. I'm glad. His <laughs> execution was stayed on three different occasions. Oh, and so I was wondering, Why? how would this feel? Yeah. Right? And listen to oh, some yeah. of these to be dates. like his wife, I would be like, just do it already. Well, that's, she finally gives an interview before his final, his execution date is re, his real one that actually goes through. She finally gives an interview. And that's one of the things she says is, I'm just glad that this is going to be over. Yeah. Because it would just be like ripping off that bandaid every single time. It gets stayed. Mm -hmm. So his execution was stayed on three different occasions. Once in July 1980, when his original execution date was set for August 8th, 1980. So just the month before. Yeah. It was postponed. And the next execution date was set for May 25th, 1982. So a full two years later. Um, and does it say why? Well, he was making appeals this whole time saying, oh, okay. hey, I'm innocent. Okay. Most of his appeals circulated around the choosing of the jury, particularly three jury members that were against the death penalty and so they didn't have them go on the jury oh, okay. because they had decided right yeah. off the bat that no I, there's no way that i could convict a man knowing that he could go to the death penalty right and okay. so during the jury selection they had tossed out those three jurors yeah. but rightfully and so you, you have can't to have be an impartial. open mind yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. but that was a lot of his appeals was like hey they would have affected his outcome because they wouldn't have voted for the death penalty. Okay. So in 1982, that's when the second execution was set for, but that was stayed as well. And the execution was then rescheduled for October 31st, 1982. So on Halloween oh. night. October. Oh, that flew right over my head. Yeah. Right on Halloween. Right on Halloween. Oh, that is when they should have done it. But they didn't. That execution, so an appeal was raised for that one, and that execution was stayed on October 27th, only four days before the execution was Oh, that poor wife to go through that. Just <laughs> days before. Yeah. To have to kind of work up. And remember, she's preparing her child for this. Yeah. A fourth and final execution date was set for March 31st, 1984. So again, he gets like a whole nother year and a half. Right up until the Friday before his execution, Ronald's defense team was making appeals. The defense had tried to make the claim that lethal injection was a cruel and unusual punishment, but the appeal was denied by the Supreme Court. Yeah, thought, no, feeding your kid a deadly pixie stick is a cruel and unusual punishment. Lethal uh, injection, isn't that one of the most humane ways? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's put you in the chair. <laughs> in an interview at the time of the execution, Deneen said that her main goal was to protect her daughter. At that time, Elizabeth Elizabeth had only started to ask to have contact with her father, but Deneen had forbidden it. So by this time, Aww. she's older, right? She's starting to understand what's going on. That would be so tough. I And I don't know if that's the decision I would make. I don't know either, to be honest. But I don't know how you would make that decision. No judgment on what decisions, whatever decision she made was probably best for her child. But that would be so hard. That would be a tough one to decide. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Bates, Ronald's former friend, was also interviewed at this same time. He felt that it was really important that he remind people of the little boy that had died because all of this time for over like the last four years since his original execution was stayed, a lot of the media attention put on Ronald's case was about how he was innocent and that he was mm. like it was raising a lot of questions of what had actually happened. And Timothy's death had kind of gotten lost in it all. <gasps> 
That's terrible. Mm-hmm. So, so he was like, let's remember why we're all here, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Let's focus on what actually happened. It became more about the death penalty and Ronald's appeals. And mm-hmm. so he just thought that it was important that people remember an actual little boy had died and lost his life in a horrific way. Yeah. Super painful way. And he's talking about the lethal injection being inhumane. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. On March 30th, Ronald ate his final meal. He had a well-done T-bone steak and Boston cream pie. Hmm. I'm always so curious to see what as to was. what their final meals are. Yeah, he had some more things like he had carrots and peas and some other things. That I thought, yeah, yeah. It wasn't deli meat like Charles Starkweather? <laughs> no, you know, steak or deli meat? I'll take deli meat. <laughs> no, this guy took the T-bone steak. Good Most on people him. would. Good choice. Uh, I'd be like, can I have chicken? <laughs> I was thinking, who's cooking up a Boston cream pie for a guy on death row? But apparently it was like one of those convenience store, like little cup ones. Oh, they should have put cyanide in it. That's what they should have done. Forget the lethal injection. (gasps) Could you imagine if that was a thing? The death penalty was that however you You murdered murdered someone, that's how you got. (gasps) That'd make a great movie. Who would have to do that, though? That would be awful. William Michael Dennis getting hacked to death. And if he knew that that was going to if he knew that that was going to happen, don't you think that that would stop some people from murdering if they knew that what they did was going to happen to them? Maybe the premeditated murders, but those murders of passion, you're not going to stop those. No, but it would maybe cut down on some. Maybe. Yeah. Or but I think most are probably premeditated when we're talking about serial killers. Listeners, what do you think? <laughs> Should that be a thing? <laughs> okay. It would deter me. Or people would get murdered in a much nicer way. Or we just get so much more clever about hiding our actions so that you wouldn't know who did the murdering, right? <laughs> well, people murdering. should be aiming for that anyway if they're trying to murder All right. I'm going to read you his last words. And okay. You are going to be so shocked. I'm curious if you're going to change your opinion of if he's guilty or innocent. Okay. Not bloody likely. <laughs> <laughs> I love it that you are just so like, nope, this is how it is. And I'm like, well, maybe. <laughs> That's usually how we are. I'm like, don't open your door. Don't let in your cousin. And you're like, be kind. Let them all in. <laughs> We need human connection. I'm like, no, we don't. People are bad. Could he still be innocent? No. (laughs) He should drink cyanide. (laughs) What if he's innocent? So on March 30th, he delivered his final words. And this is what they were. What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs. Yet doesn't mean that our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also, to anyone I have offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask for your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way. And I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us, respectfully, as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in my heart I love you, one and all. God bless you, and may God's best blessings be always yours. Nope. I'm not buying it. No? No. You think it's just a big act? Yes. Why? You do? To all my loved ones, I would do anything for you. (laughs) No, you wouldn't. You'd kill them. I don't know. If they're your loved ones, don't poison them to death. I guess why I start to question it is what kind of sick individual would actually make a claim like this after killing their son? Look at your profile. 
for poisoners. Yeah. Right? And it's all about them. It's all about them. They're childlike. He's being manipulative right to the very end. Right to the very end. Yeah. I I don't buy it. I guess I'm easily manipulated. (laughs) (laughs) But even for people to see him like putting on the act when people are around and then not when they're away, you don't talk to everybody about arsenic. You don't take out all these policies and not want your wife to know about it. It's true. There's too much circumstantial evidence. Yeah. He's the one with the pixie sticks. No one was at that house with the hairy arm that night they've got perfect alibis there was no harried arm man (laughs) i get it he has you know the scissors and the knife you know we know that he used those to cut them open he has the stapler that he stole yeah yeah no i'm not buying it he's just woe is me yeah i'm the innocent and for him to be like i'm going to forgive everybody and i hope you forgive me load of crap because you know you murdered your son but how twisted is that it's his last ditch effort yeah, he wants people to think he was innocent. He wants to raise doubts in all the mm-hmm. Melissa's in the world to be like, well, maybe he's innocent. But that's what the Christie's are for. <laughs> okay, Christy, you have convinced me. <laughs> no way, sir. Uh-uh. He is guilty. You killed Halloween and now you deserve to die. <laughs> well, that's what he did. At 1248 on March 31st, Ronald was injected with a lethal cocktail of drugs and was declared dead. He left his meager belongings to a fellow inmate and the former optician agreed to donate his eyes to research and cataract transplants. How cool oh, that is cool. Oh, you think it's cool? I'm that thinking... he donated his eyes? Yes. Somebody is walking around with a killer's eyes. Ah, it's just, that's just a body part. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best part about this whole story that I okay. think. Outside the prison, a crowd of almost 300 people had gathered. Some of them were protesters against the death penalty, and others were supporters and waiting for Ronald to die. When the news of Ronald's death reached the crowd, the supporters shouted trick-or-treat and threw Halloween candy. <gasps> That's awesome! Isn't that crazy? I love <laughs> That would be me. It's like poetic justice. <laughs> trick-or-treat, Ronald! <laughs> Well, now Halloween can continue, right? Yeah, I don't have any sympathy for Ronald. There are so many things about this case that I just can't figure out. Like, why? Again, why would you tell the police the description of the candy? It would have been so easy to just poison that one child and say, he ate some candy. I don't know which one it was. It's a special kind of dirtbag to murder your son. And for really a small amount of money. Yeah, it's not going to get him very far. No. It didn't even get him out of the debt that he was already Not even halfway out of his debt. No. I found it interesting that the mom never cashed in on the policy. Oh, that is interesting. She said it was blood money and she wanted nothing to do with it. Mind you, maybe I would have collected it and then donated it. Because why let the insurance company have it? True point. So that is the callous and calculating, but not necessarily smart story of Ronald <laughs> Clark O'Brien, the dirtbag that murdered his son for money. The dirtbag <laughs> is guilty. He's manipulative. I would have been right there throwing candy, honestly. Yes. Well, on that note, we hope all of you have a spooky Halloween. Stay safe out there. And check your kids' candy. Definitely. See ya. Bye. Let's get into today. Today, today, Junior. That treat went down the toilet. What? Are you ready? 
Development. Yeah, I'm not ready. But wouldn't that be a great Darwin Award? Someone who like (laughs) dies from taste testing their poison dish that they wanted to give to somebody else. I could have done this better. (laughs) I'm sure you could. Tilt your head back. I need to pour (laughs) Pour some sugar (laughs) on me. We really shouldn't record at night. I take no responsibility for what my brain thinks sometimes. And a chemical outlet. Yeah, there's a chemical outlet mall, actually. (laughs) Texas has got it going on. His his excuse? We're going to excuse you from this world. (laughs) Oh, that actually works. (sighs) Okay, we're going to get down a wrong road here. Okay, back to the kids. We Halloween. <laughs> I think our cookies are kicking. In. <laughs> there is our double <laughs> you. <laughs> you better cut this out. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.